beautiful people. I'm Heat, host of Ordinary Chaos, where we explore the interesting side of ordinary. We often see famous people as interesting and not famous people as not interesting. But the truth is, we're all interesting if you ask the right questions. Today's guest is an artist, a not famous artist, talking about her process and her work. I thought she was fascinating and was sad the conversation ended so quickly. Also, this conversation had two distinct paths, one about her art and one about technology. Let's get to it. He here today with an artist guest. Our guest today is Karen Green, and Karen is an ankle weaver. And if you don't know what that is, that's okay. Until I met Karen, I didn't know what that was either. Karen, tell us about ankle weaving or what is it? <laughs> so ankle is an, a European word. It's an old word, five or, at least five or 600 years. Shakespeare actually uses it. But what it is, is a narrow piece of weaving. Anything from about a shoelace to a guitar strap in width. And it is warp faced, which means whenever you're weaving, the threads that are tied onto the loom and are there under tension is your warp. So when I say it's warp faced, that means those are the only threads that you see. The order and color of the threads on your loom is what you're going to see on the band. And then you can manipulate that by picking up threads and dropping down threads and other things. But at its basic structure, it is warp faced. And it is also plain weave. So when you're weaving, you have two threads, the warp threads on the loom and the weft is the thread that goes at a 90 degree angle to the warp. And when you're going over one thread, under the next thread, over, under, over, under, on the next pass, you do the reverse. So the threads that you went under, you're now going over. That's what's called plain weave. So it is narrow, it is warp faced, and it is plain weave. Is it possible to weave and not have? I had always defined weaving as over, under, over, under, and then the next one was the opposite. Yes. So if you look at something like your jeans, if you look at them very carefully, you see there's like a sort of a diagonal line. Yes. And the reason that the weaves, we call it the weave structure, which is how the fabric is actually put together. The weave structure of jeans is a twill. And it's usually a one-two twill. So that means you're going over one, under two, over one, under two. So different weave structures. When we say the weave structure, we're talking about how many threads are you going over and under each time you put one pass of the weft. One pass of the weft, we call a pick. So every time you throw a pick, how many threads are you going over and under? That's how we define a weave structure. Interesting. So my other question about Your definition of ankle is it's warp face. Yes. But if your weft threads are going over and under, how are they not visible? They're not visible because the warp threads are so close together. They're like crammed up against each other. So that's the other thing. If you look at your jeans, you are actually seeing both the warp and the weft usually in jeans, one of those threads is white and one of them is blue. And so that's how you get sort of that little bit of a speckle to the denim. Yes. And so you're seeing both of them and you're seeing both of them because most weaving is a balanced weave. Like if you were to count how many warp threads are in an inch, 
of warp, you would have the same number of picks in an inch. They're spaced equally apart. That's called a balanced weave. But one of the things about weaving is you can manipulate that. You can make threads wider apart than they might otherwise be, or you can cram them closer together. And in Inkle, the warp threads are crammed really close together so that there's no space between them. And that's why you don't see the weft threads. That is fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) The only place you see the wefts is at the borders because where you're, you're wrapping around that outermost warp, you have to wrap around to go back in to do the next pass. So at the borders, you do see a little peak of the weft, but other than that, you don't see the weft at all in an inkle band. And inkle bands, when I say shoelace to guitar strap, like if you look at a shoelace that's woven, they're not all woven, but most of them are, it's literally almost always an inkle band. Sometimes they are twill where you will have that same diagonal structure like you do in your jeans. But most of the time, even if they're round, so most of the time inkles are flat, but they can also be made to be round. And so shoelaces are almost always inkle bands. So are guitar straps. So is grow grain ribbon. So you are familiar with Inkle, you've just never heard it called by that name. (laughs) (laughs) I knew I would learn today and I already have. (laughs) How did you learn about Inkle and how did you get into it? I was a knitter first. I taught myself to knit out of a book when I was 18. And for a long time, I was only a knitter. And then in 2013, a friend taught me to crochet. And in 2014, I learned how to spin yarn. And I knew I was going to weave sometime. I didn't know when, but in 2014, later in the year, the local yarn store had a class in rigid heddle weaving. So that's not inkle. That's that's a particular type of loom, rigid heddle. You make wider pieces of cloth. But I took that class and then I joined the local weaving guild. And one of the members in that weaving guild is a really passionate inkle weaver. There's several people who weave inkle bands, but she's passionate in particular and blogs about it and things and teaches. And so I learned about the existence of Inkle through her. Like before that, I didn't know what Inkle was either. I'd never heard (laughs) it. (laughs) I feel like that's a big jump from I learned to knit, I learned to crochet. Oh, and then I started to spin yarn. (laughs) I know a lot of people who knit and crochet and do not spin yarn. Mm. Well, fiber is a rabbit hole. I feel like this is true. Whenever there's something people are passionate about, they're always also passionate about getting other people to love it. Yes. Fiber art is particularly good at that because, well, first of all, there's a couple of things. One is I started to want to learn about spinning because I wanted to understand knitting better. I wanted to understand yarn better and how to choose yarn. And this is the kind of person that I am. I have great Google foo. I like, if I want to know something, I'm going to figure it out. And so spinning was sort of like a sort of side thing that I just want to know how the yarn works. Like, what does this really mean? Like what plies, all of this. I wanted to understand the structure of yarn. And again, it was, it was one of those things where I knew I would try spinning someday. And actually, before I officially started spinning, I had tried to spin multiple times using a a drop spindle. I think the first time I was like 10 or 11, I was, uh, we lived in the Northeast in Massachusetts and we went to Sturbridge Village, which is, I guess it's about a 17th or 18th century living history museum. And I bought a spindle in the gift shop when we were there and I never could get it to work right. 
And so it's not like it was the first time I'd ever tried to spin. It's the time that it stuck. (laughs) (laughs) And I was actually visiting a friend in Indiana and we went to a fiber event that was in her town. It was, you know, at the um, county fairgrounds. And I spent about two hours in a booth there trying different spinning wheels to see what I liked and what worked for me. And with a lot of guidance from the shop owner, I bought a wheel and they drop shipped it to me and it got home a couple of days after I did. <laughs> That's how I actually bought my first spinning wheel. <laughs> did you keep the one that you had as a kid? No, I mean, I have moved, I don't even know, at least eight or nine times between when I bought that <laughs> spindle and when I bought a spinning wheel and somewhere along the line, it got decluttered when I was packing. I have no idea when. That's fair. I was just wondering if you ever got it to work. No, I actually am still not a great spindle spinner. You know, a lot of times when you're learning to spin, people tell you start with a spindle. And I understand that advice because spindles are much less expensive than a spinning wheel is. A low end spinning wheel is going to be $500 and you can get a spindle for 20. So it's a huge price difference. (laughs) So that's why people give that advice. See if you like it. But When you're spinning, you are putting twist into the fiber. So you have two tasks. One is you have to keep whatever it is spinning, whether that's a spindle or your wheel. And then you're attenuating the fiber that you're spinning. You're making it thinner. We call that drafting, that process of attenuating. And so there's a lot going on. When you're spindle spinning, you're doing all of that with your hands you're keeping the motion going, you're doing the drafting, you have to stop every once in a while and wind your spun yarn on. People call it a drop spindle. And I have been calling it that I generally prefer to call it a suspended spindle. So it's suspended in midair. The goal is not to drop it. (laughs) 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 So I tend to prefer the term suspended spindle for that reason. But it's in the air. So, you know, it can't touch the ground. There are supported spindles that sit in a bowl or something like that. So you, it rests in the bowl while you spin. That's called a supported spindle. But either way, once you get to a certain length of spun yarn, you have to stop and manually wrap it on to the spindle in order to be able to keep spinning. And so, you know, wheel does a lot of that work for you. When you spin on a wheel, you have to keep track of how fast you're moving your feet. You can't move too fast or you have end up with really too much twist in your yarn and it gets wiry, but you also don't have to focus as much on the, tra- you know, I feel like I needed to learn how to draft to keep the thread together properly. Cause if you pull out too quickly, you're going to break your thread. And if you are using a spindle, that's when it's going to drop. <laughs> and so I just found it easier to learn. And also when you're working on a spindle, you tend to be drafting in an upwards motion, a vertical motion, while on a wheel, you're drafting in a horizontal motion. So it's a little bit different. And I ultimately found it much easier to learn to spin on a wheel than on a spindle because of that. Interesting. All the things you never knew about creating yarn. <laughs> one just never thought about one way or the other. So you started in 2014, I think you said. With spinning and weaving, yes. And so in the time since then, how has it progressed or changed? That's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about it that way. I have learned a whole heck of a lot (laughs) since then. I mean, I've taken classes. I've been to multiple events and taken classes and learned a lot. One of the things that I love about working with fiber is there's always something new to learn. 
I could be learning something new constantly and I'm never going to exhaust the subject in my lifetime. And I like that. I like to, to have the option of, of learning new things. One of the things that really, once I dove down the hole into spinning in particular, you know, I was trying to understand how does yarn work. So one of the rabbit holes that I went down was the different types of fiber, different sheep breeds. What happens when you spin different breeds of sheep? What's the difference between a hemp fiber and a cotton fiber? So different varieties of plant fibers. What about other fiber animals? The most common fiber animals for spinning are sheep wool, alpaca. Those are probably the two most common, but there's also yak fiber. There's kiviet, which is musk ox. There's llama and there's camel and chinchilla and fox. People spin their pet hair. <laughs> there's rabbits and goats. All of these fibers spin differently and have different characteristics. And cre- when you knit or crochet with them, you get different types of fabric. Some of them will stretch more than others. And then, you know, similarly with plants, I think cotton and flax are probably the two plants that people might think of immediately, but I already mentioned hemp. And there's a lot of fibers that are, I'm not going to call them natural because they are rayons. And a rayon is a man-made fabric. Whatever the base of it is, is chemically broken it down and it's basically like extruded. It's often called a natural fiber because it's a natural base that goes to making it, but it's a very processed fiber. But they make rayons that they market under the name of the plant. Bamboo is often really a rayon type fabric, but there's also milk and rose and pineapple and pearls that they make fiber out of that you can spin and work with. That is wild. (laughs) (laughs) There's, I'm sure there's others that I'm not even thinking of right now. The first time I saw milk fiber and pearl fiber, some of the pearl fiber is very rayon and just extruded. And some of it actually has crushed up pearls incorporated into the fiber. What would you make out of that? The question is, what is the fabric going to do? You can make anything you want out of any of these fibers. And it depends also on how it's spun. So the same fiber can be spun in different ways. If you're going to spin for weaving, you're going to spin it differently than if you're going to spin for knitting. I usually say, tell people their t-shirts are knit and their jeans are woven. Those are the two most common structures of fabric. There is, of course, very man-made processed fabric. So something like what they make scuba out of, right, is not really either woven or knit. But most of the garments that you wear on a regular basis are either woven or knit. As far as I know, it's not possible to produce crochet commercially. So crochet garments are generally handmade. Even if you're buying them in a store, somebody's handmaking them. But the vast majority of the clothing that you wear is either knit or crochet. So if you think about the nature of your t-shirt versus the nature of your jeans, if your jeans don't are just cotton and they don't have any uh, stretchy material added to them, even if they do, they're a much firmer fabric, whereas your t-shirt is very stretchy. Right. And so what are you going to do with any particular fiber depends on what you want the finished product to look like, how much sheen do you want it to have, for example, because something like silk has a very high sheen, whereas wool's not going to, most wools, some wools do. And how stretchy is it? Does it need to be like, what part of the body are you covering and how curvy is that part of the body? 
if you're doing clothing versus if you're doing a bag of some kind. You don't necessarily want as much stretch. Maybe you do if you have a market bag, like you're putting vegetables in versus if you want a book bag, <laughs> like how much, <laughs> you know, so, so different kinds of fabric are just going to make different kinds of stretch and drape is the other word that we use. So drape, you can think of as how flowy is it? Right. Those are the considerations that go into deciding. And sometimes you don't know what a fabric's going to do. That's why we swatch or sample and try stuff out before you make something really big. <laughs> so you get to, you can play with it and stress test it a little bit and see what is this fiber going to do and will it work for this current application. This begins to explain why there's so many types of yarn. Yes. Yarn, first of all, it's a fiber. Second of all, it's how much twist is in it. The more twists that it's in, the less the fabric is, the yarn is likely to stretch. So when you're weaving, whether you're weaving inkle or you're weaving on a floor loom, you're holding that fiber under tension, like really tight tension. You want it to stay under uniform tension the entire time that you are weaving, which means you, it really can't stretch on you. Right. Because then you're just going to end up with really wonky fabric if it stretches. So there's that, how much twist is in the yarn helps to explain that. How thick is the yarn? How many different plies there are? So almost all yarn is made up of multiple plies. So when you spin to make yarn, you're only spinning one ply at a time. And then after you spin the individual ones, you then have to join them together, which is called plying. In general, the thicker your yarn is, the warmer it's going to be. But there's also differences in the way that you spin yarn, that it, an individual fly can be more tightly twisted, it can be fluffier. And depending on how you do that also affects how warm the yarn is going to be. In general, if there's more air in the yarn, it's going to be warmer because cold air gets trapped in those spaces before it gets to you. So if it's a little fluffier, it'll be warmer. Huh. You might have guessed I can talk about yarn and fabric all day long. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that about you. <laughs> do you sell your ankles? No, I do not sell any finished products. You might get them from me as a gift, but I don't sell finished products. One reason for that is that fiber work is a slow process. There are things that you can do to make it faster and ankle weaving in particular is relatively fast in the world of fiber arts. Because they're, they're small? Yes, because they're both narrow and relatively short. The most common ankle loom that's sold in the United States, the longest length that you can put on it is about seven feet finished length. So that's relatively short. On floor looms, I know people who routinely put on 15-yard warps. And longer, like people put 40 yard warps on their looms. We're talking about seven feet, <laughs> you know, it, it, and it's narrow, you know, it's no more than about six inches. Well, really no more than about three inches wide. The, the most common inkle loom that's sold in the United States, about three inches is about the widest band you can weave on it. And so it doesn't take very long to put a warp on and it doesn't take very long to weave it because they're small. But even still, like for me to warp a band that's about an inch wide and seven feet long, 
it takes me maybe an hour to warp it and probably about three to weave it. So it's about four hours to do a seven hour band. I'm not the fastest. I'm sure there are people who do it much faster than I do. <laughs> and there are definitely people who sell their bands. But think about what price would you pay? Would you be willing to pay to buy something like that? You know, I've had people say, uh, when I post a picture of like socks that I knit, oh, you should sell the socks. And my response is, will you pay $200 for a pair of socks? Right. And $200 is pretty cheap because like the skein of yarn that it takes to knit a pair of socks might cost me $30 for the yarn. And then it takes me about 20 hours to knit a pair of socks. So I'm just barely paying myself minimum wage if you pay $200 for my pair of socks. So no, I don't sell finished objects. (laughs) (laughs) There is something that you've recently put into the world that has to do with Inkle, but it's not weaving directly that you are selling. Yeah. Tell us about that. So my husband and I made an app and it's currently available only for iPad and it's called Inkle Designer 123. And what it does is you can design your weaving patterns and then you can keep track of your progress while you're weaving. It'll You can keep track of what row you're on. Especially if you're weaving a plain weave band, you really just have to go back and forth until the end of the band. But what I had said briefly earlier is that you can also physically manipulate the yarn. So when you're doing plain weave, you're doing that every other yarn is up and down in alternating rows, but you can choose to push down a thread that's naturally up, or you can pull a thread up from the bottom and bring it up to the top. So either way, whether you're doing a pushdown or a pull-up, it's not really a true plane weave at that point because you're altering how many threads you're going over and under and you're changing what the surface of the band looks like. So when you're doing that, you need to keep track of which thread on this row do I need to pick up? So our app will show you that. It gives you a display of the full row and then it above has numbers and it indicates very clearly which thread you need to pick up or push down in order to continue to create the pattern that you designed. Neat. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. It took us about three years (laughs) from concept to out in the world. That's a long time. Yes. I mean, it's longer than we anticipated. I mean, isn't it always? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Way longer than you anticipate. (laughs) You just need to add a 20%. It was also a learning process for both of us. Like I'm the fiber person, clearly. My husband is a software developer. And so I can do tech stuff. I also have built websites and whatnot, but I do that without writing any code. I don't know how to write any code. And that has Chris's lifelong. He started writing code when he was I don't know, 15 or something on his own. And so, and that's what he did. He does professionally. And so this was a collaborative project in which I had to explain to him how weaving worked. And he had to explain to me how the process of developing software works. It was very interesting for both of us. It took me six months to get him to consistently say weaving instead of knitting. (laughs) He knew they were different, but could he tell you how? No. And for me, he pushed me to understand Inkle in a far deeper way than I did when we started this because he had to understand the physics. I didn't understand the physics of how Inkle bands work. Like if we do X, if if this thread is thicker than this thread, 
and they're four threads apart in the weave. Like, what is it going to look like when you actually weave them? We had a lot of conversation and I did a lot of reading on trying to understand the actual underlying physics. So it was, it was a learning experience for both of us. Sounds like it, but you like learning experiences. So I really do. <laughs> I, I, you know, the other thing I feel like was a really good thing for me to learn from this process has to do with failure because software development, the, well, the process that we use is called agile development. And it's a very specific process that it, uh, is used to develop a lot of software in the world, has been used for at least the last 25 years. And it's an iteration process that assumes failure points. So <laughs> Agile breaks your project down into two-week cycles. And you say, this is what we want to accomplish in this two weeks. And it may break what you've done before, or it may not be functional at the end of the two weeks. That's okay. You reevaluate and say, what do we do next? Because this is a process that like assumes failure and assumes that something's not going to work the first time, that's really freeing and has really it started to impact how I think about other projects and other things that I'm trying to learn. Like I'm really good at learning. If I would have told you before this that I don't internalize failure, but this made me realize that I was probably internalizing failure more than I realized. That I was. <laughs> and it has helped me to externalize some of that and not get quite as stuck. That is an amazing lesson right there. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many of us could use a good dose of that? Right. <laughs> the whole philosophy is to start with your minimum viable product. And that might, and minimum viable might mean just for this week, just for this week, we're going to get this one thing to be viable. The whole thing isn't viable yet. That's okay. We're getting this one thing. (laughs) And I feel like those are words that are said in a lot of creative contexts, but it was working on this software project that really helped me to sort of live it in a way that I maybe it's not like the words were necessarily new, but the actually living them into practice was new. <laughs> that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So in the process of developing that, what sort of bumps do you hit? Well, I think the first bump is always going to be a communication one because we're bringing two entirely different worlds with two very unique vocabularies together and two very different experiences. So Chris is like, but well, what if, and I'm like, well, it's just this. Like, why is it that hard? <laughs> <laughs> so that's always an issue. And, you know, technology is technology. It doesn't always do what we anticipate that it's going to do. We all know that. We <laughs> It doesn't matter if all you do is use a phone and you think you're not a technological person. Sometimes it, whatever technology you use doesn't work. And it can be really, you know, that's funny. I just started to say something different. and. That's really a a communications issue too, because while Chris is a software developer, he had never written an app before. So he had to learn a whole new set of computer language and process because it's an iOS app. And so we were using Swift, which is a computer language that Apple developed for use in iOS. And also Apple provides some pieces of code to provide structure for certain things. And so we have to work within those parameters. And 
a lot of Chris's road bumps and frustrations were that Apple's code wasn't doing what he expected and he couldn't find documentation and explanation of what it was supposed to do in order to figure out why it wasn't working. That's a communications issue too. That's a communications issue between, you know, Apple and the developer using their products. So we have had several road bumps that were around that. And in ways that are really frustrating and weird, we have points in the app where you have text boxes that you have to enter text into. So if you're on an iPad, if you tap a a text box, you get a keyboard on the screen, right? The keyboard pops up automatically. Well, when that happens, Apple doesn't have it automatically set to do anything related to that text box, like scroll it up, for example, if the keyboard's going to cover it. (laughs) I think Chris probably spent almost two months trying to solve that problem. And then he would think it was solved. And six weeks later, it would break again. Oh, how frustrating. Yeah. So (laughs) those are communications issues too, because it's the communication between they're they're providing the structure and we're trying to figure out how the structure works and it's not well documented. I mean, your original question was, what were the speed bumps? I think the biggest single speed bump, no matter how you look at it, is a a communication problem. (laughs) 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 kind. (laughs) Your app just recently came out into the world. Yes. About two weeks ago. And people can find it in the Apple App Store. Yes. I think you will only see it if you go to the store from the iPad. That was definitely the case at first. I think you might now see it in the iPhone store too, but it'll tell you it's not available for this device. Okay. For pricing that, how did you determine what to charge? Oh boy. That was a (laughs) conversation that went on for many, many weeks and months. Who knows if we actually got it right? The first question is, is it a single price or is it a subscription? As a user, I personally prefer to pay once and I have the software. Right. As a developer, a subscription makes a lot more sense because when you sell software, like we're going to be maintaining it for some time. And if five people buy the app today and nobody buys it for the next five years, how long are we supposed to maintain it? With a subscription model, at least you have ongoing revenue, which is also in a way you could think of as feedback because if people continue to pay for it, they're continuing to use it and you know that people are using it. So we went back and forth a lot. We ultimately decided to go with a flat rate model largely because we feel like that's in the better interests of the people using it. One of the things that was really surprising to me about this whole process was the places where Apple expects the individual developer to implement certain things. In-app purchases is one of those. And subscription model, like the level of code that we have to write for that is astounding to me that it is not simply a push a button kind of a thing because we have to have a way to confirm that people actually made the purchase and it ultimately would involve having our own server and potentially collecting some personal data. So there was like a whole raft of technical and legal stuff that goes with a subscription model and also in-app purchases. So we think it's a better model for, you know, having a flat price is a better model for the purchaser, but it's also a less technically involved model for us to implement. So then you have to talk about how much is it going to be? We looked, there are other apps that are in the fiber arts world. And so we looked at the different models that they had implemented and what they were charging. And also consider the fact that we know it's very niche. 
I mean, we call it Inkle Designer 123. Technically, you could use it if you were creating a warp-faced project that was wider, like on a floor loom or something, you could still use it. But by naming it what we did, it's obvious we're targeting a very specific group of people. So we went back and forth a lot. We ultimately did a flat rate of $49.99. It was our intention all along because we had beta testers who were amazing. And we have people who are on our newsletter list who are amazing, who were on our newsletter list for minimum eight months, well, maximum eight months before we launched. And some of them just had provided such generous feedback to us, even if they weren't in the beta testing program, like people emailed us encouragement and it was just amazing. (laughs) And we really wanted to be able to offer those, you know, our newsletter list and our beta testers a discount. So here's another thing where we ran into an Apple wall. Apple does not provide a way to do any kind of coupon codes if you are selling an app for a flat rate. That's crazy. We thought we were missing it and misunderstanding. And we actually attended a webinar about a week and a half before we released the app. We attended an Apple webinar that was specifically about the implementation of coupon codes and asked the question. And the answer was, no, we do not support that because we would have to be able, we would have to implement a way to know that the coupon code was for your app and that they were actually buying your app as opposed to somebody else's app and trying to enter my coupon code on somebody else's app. And so, no, we don't support that. I was like shocked. (laughs) (laughs) So they only offer a way to provide discounts and coupons if you do in-app purchases or subscriptions, but not if you're doing a flat rate. So What we ended up deciding to do is that when we first released it, and it's currently available for $34.99, although that expires on March 13. So by the time this podcast airs, that will have expired. So $49.99 is where we ended up. Who knows if it's right? Like this is anytime you sell something, isn't that the question? Did I do the right thing? Pricing? Who knows? (laughs) It's easier with the socks. way that's true you have a concrete number of hours and all of that but yeah who knows i mean we definitely have had feedback from people who were like i don't ink a weave that much okay and it's clear from seeing the analytics there's a lot of people who are looking at it and not buying it and i'm sure the price point is the reason although nobody only one or two people have specifically said that but who knows it's all, it's always a learning experience putting something out into the world and seeing how it goes, right? Yes, always. It's a challenge. And there were wrinkles to this that we didn't anticipate, particularly with the coupon code. We might have gone a different direction if we had realized that. Communication. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I had something I thought of, you know, it's three years it took us. And part of that, we probably could have released this a year ago or more. Some of the reason it wasn't released is our own lack of confidence because this is the first time we're doing an app. So one of the other things that you have to do is Apple reviews apps. Everything that goes into the Apple app store has been through a review process. And it is a place where they actually have some good documentation of what they're looking for. And I actually had a checklist because of course I did. Actually, I read all of the documentation. <laughs> I, I created like a, a checklist. And even so, we just weren't sure if we had met everything. When we submitted for review, there were some things that we didn't hadn't put in. Like we didn't fill out our about page as much as we're planning to because we assumed we were going to get rejected. <laughs> 
but we didn't. In less than 48 hours, they approved it. (laughs) And we were a little taken aback because we really expected that we must have missed something because there's so many different small things that they look at. We're like, I'm sure we missed something. We're going to submit it. We'll get rejected and then we'll just fix it. But we did. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? In all likelihood, we could have released this a lot sooner and then added features later. There was like a set of features we wanted to release with, but we could have released something that was simpler and added features on as we went. That's not the path that we chose to go. Maybe with future apps, we might. Now that you know what the path looks like? Yes. I mean, you can't do anything the first time and not learn heaps from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to shift back into the actual weaving. Mm -hmm. What kinds of things do you make? With weaving, with ankle bands, with yarn, all of the above? Uh, Let's start with ankle. Okay. Ankle bands originally, if you think of a world where there were no zippers or buttons or buttons were very expensive, how do you fasten clothing onto your body? The answer is it was tied on most of the time. And so the ankle bands were woven as the ties because they are strong and because, you know, it's a, it's a good technique for narrow. So that's one thing that they were traditionally used for. If you ever look at any historic clothing that was tied onto the body, those ties are ankle bands. Ankles are not called ankles everywhere in the world or at all times. Tapes is another common word for them. So if you're ever reading anything about historical clothing and they talk about tape, it's an ankle band that they're usually talking about. They were also woven for, to like use as a rope, like if you, like on a farm to tie sacks of grain and stuff, tie them closed and whatnot. So using them to tie anything (laughs) is very traditional. Also using them as a belt or a decorative trim on clothing. Those are all very traditional uses of ankle, but also certainly things like a key fob people, you know, cause you can cut them to length and sew them into anything. And you can also sew them side by side to make a wider piece of fabric. So you can make things like purses or eyeglass cases, webbing, like for a chair seat. If you've ever seen like a woven web, those are woven. They're an ankle band structure the webbing for chairs. So you can do that yourself, use your woven things and then use them in a larger piece of weaving so that each ankle band itself is the warp or the weft. My friend, Jennifer, who is the one that I learned from, she has a blog, which is called Inkled Pink, which I love that name. (laughs) She really loves creating new ways to use ankle bands. She's made Christmas ornaments using like origami folding techniques to make little wreaths or woven baskets. She has been published a couple of times in some weaving magazines. Most recently, she used ankle bands to make flip-flops, to make the bands of flip-flops, the part that goes over your foot. Right. But anything that's a strap for sure, binocular straps, your guitar straps or any other stringed instrument, camera straps, that kind of thing. I would guess in those types of things, the more difficult part would be how to attach it to the thing that it's a strap for. Yeah. Well, you can buy the findings for all of those things. That's what the extra little bits, like the little leather piece that might go on the end of a band like that. Those are called findings. And so you can buy those pieces separately. Uh, Dog leashes and collars or cat collars. 
is another common thing that people do with their ankles. Interesting. Ankles, ankles everywhere. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, actually, dog leashes are another thing that if you look at your dog leash, your, your leash, even if it is nylon webbing, the weave structure of it is an ankle. I can picture that. Yeah. So of all the things that you've made, do you have a favorite? Oh, boy. <laughs> I've been making stuff for a long time. So one of the reasons that I like to make things is, especially working with fiber, is people have been working with fiber and making clothing as long as there's been people. Right. Weaving and spinning are very, very old. Like the oldest woven garment that exists, I believe, is about 13,000 years old. Wow. Most of the time, textiles don't survive in archaeology. You need very specific conditions. I mean, we're talking about natural products they rot. Most of the time, though, what they find are the tools. So the whorls of spindles, that's the part, the disc part, waits for looms because modern looms have tensioning systems built in. But what they used to do is to tie discs made from stone. To, they would tie the warp to it. That's how they would get tension. So they would have a, a vertical warp. So it would basically be two logs. And often they were in the house and w- what they might find are the holes in the floor where the logs were set into. And then a beam across the top. And then you would throw your warp over that and tie the bottom of it. So that's how you were keeping it in tension. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Um, and so what they find are the weights. So even if they're not finding the fabric, they're finding the tools for fabric making. Right. Because those are are more durable, made out of stone. So people have been spinning and weaving for a very long time. And it's part of why I love to do this, because it feels this connection to community, like to participating in the same tasks that have had to be done for millennia. There's something really gratifying about that. The very first thing that I ever knit when I was 18 years old 19 years old, was a baby blanket. Well, the second thing I ever knit was a baby blanket. And I knit that for my cousin. And three years ago, my three or three years ago, I guess it was, my cousin had his first baby and his two sisters were pregnant at the same time. So these three babies were born. One, one was born in March and the other two were born in May. They're all very close in age. And so I've been, I'm still working on, haven't finished baby blankets for all of them, but using the same pattern. Oh, nice. That I used to make his baby blanket when he was born. I recently made a pair of slippers. They're they're crocheted, but they're very modest crocheted slippers, not a difficult project. I made them for Chris copying slippers that his aunt used to make. His aunt passed away in 2012 and she used to make slippers for everybody she would just sit while she was watching TV at night and she was always crocheting slippers. She like had a drawer full of them. The first time I ever <laughs> met his family and went for Christmas, like I got a gift from her, which I was shocked to like get a gift. These people don't even know me, I, you know, and I got a Christmas gift and it was a pair of these slippers. So I reverse engineered the pair that Chris had because they were literally falling apart with holes in them and like held together with safety pins. <laughs> You know, she passed away in 2012. She can't make him another pair. So I reverse engineered them. All of which is to say my favorite projects are the ones with history. I actually have, I haven't done it yet, but I have a baby blanket and cardigan that Chris's aunt knit for him when he was born. So Chris is 57 years old now. (laughs) I have these little (laughs) objects that are 57 years old that I, um, I want to reverse engineer. 
I don't have any babies to make them for, but I still want to reverse engineer them because those hands that made it and to have like that legacy of them. So those are the things that I, I love to make the most. I love the things that have story and history and connection. That makes a lot of sense. That's cool. Is there anything else that you want to talk about that we missed? Hmm. That's a good question. I do. There is, I want to talk about the whole idea of artist. Okay. <laughs> because like you introduced me as an artist at the beginning of this. And that's interesting to me because I don't really see myself as an artist, which partially is probably just my own head. But, you know, particularly because what I do is fiber crafts, you know, fiber art, a lot of it gets dismissed and not considered as fine art. It's just, oh, the crafty grandma over there. And so there's a lot of history in terms of what you call this, right? Is it craft? Is it art? Is it whatever? And, you know, a lot of that is just gatekeeping that I find annoying. Yes. I I heard somebody say, and I don't, I've heard it more than once. And I don't remember where I heard it the first time. Crafting is working with your hands. Craftsmanship is working with your hands and your head. And artistry is working with your hands and your head and your heart. And I've been thinking about that. In some ways, those are artificial boundaries. Because when I take a project and like I, I make this blanket to match the one my, I made for my cousin when he was born, there's a lot of heart that goes into that. And so I don't really like those distinctions in that way. And I don't like the gatekeeping that's going on. And especially the fact that fiber arts, at least in recent history and in the Western world, are things that are predominantly done by women. And so there is a lack of appreciation for the work of women. Yes. That is endemic anytime anybody's talking about fiber art. At the same time, I do think there is some sort of value in distinguishing, you know, what is art? Like this is a big conversation. What is art? And I, I mean, I've, I've sat in knitting groups where people have been like, what you are doing is art. It's beautiful. And I have an objection to that too, because the fact that something is beautiful doesn't make it art. Something doesn't have to be beautiful to be art. And there are really good arguments for reasons to make art. That's not beautiful to look at. Yes. I'm just going to reference Deborah in this. Yes. I'm sort of starting to think of craft as being a beginner. You're making something with your hands. Maybe it's not very good because you haven't learned how to use everything yet. I'm thinking of craftsmanship as being intermediate, where the focus of that is very much understanding your tools and materials, like doing that deep dive to understand what is the structure of the yarn. What difference does that make if I use a wooden needle versus a metal needle to knit this? Like, what is the difference between the length of the tip of my needle and how pointy it is? Like, do these things make a difference in how my finished product looks? And if they do or don't, do I care? And once you understand that, then you can start to manipulate things for yourself in order to put a message of some kind into the world of what it is that you value. And to me, that's what you're doing with artistry is that's what art is, is I'm trying to make a statement about what I value in the world. And so the work isn't just about creating the object. It's also about, I want this object to tell you a story. Uh, So to me, that's an advanced level because in order to do that 
well, you need to understand how your tools and materials work. I object, you know, I said about the lack of appreciation for women, but if somebody is painting, if they put paint on a canvas, regardless of their skill level or knowledge, we call them an artist. And I don't think that's appropriate either. Like, I feel like we need some other kind of nomenclature almost here (laughs) that incorporates the concept of skill, regardless of what your media is, you know, your skill and your purpose are part of artistry. And so this is why I struggle with the idea of calling myself an artist, because I feel I'm comfortable with the idea of craftsmanship. And like, definitely I'm in that space of doing a dive into understanding how things work. Am I putting a message into the work that I'm doing? I don't necessarily think that I do that now. Not that I might not in the future. I feel like I there's a lot of skill that I don't have that goes into that. Do you have to have all the skill? That's a, a fair question. And I don't know. I, I do feel like when your goal is the creation of meaning and storytelling through your work, regardless of your skill level, you're, you're in the mindset of artistry. So like reverse engineering a pair of slippers. Yeah. Yeah. There's the piece of when I'm doing that, it's not just the skill of being able to do that, but also the connection there. There is that connection to the story. So that's fair. That's a fair observation that I have. Well, and going back to just a tiny bit that you said a moment ago, and talking about someone puts paint on a canvas, then we call them an artist, regardless of Mm -hmm. the quality, which is also subjective. But the person themselves is less likely to label themselves that way, I think, than people around them. I see that in all different types of skill based activities. I mean, I see it a lot in running. I'm not a runner. Because, you know, I run 13 minute miles and I only run three miles a day. I mean, you know, whatever, those kinds of things. Where is the line? Or who gets to make the definition? Very important questions. Usually the gatekeepers. It's one of the things I I kind of love about the world that we live in right now is I feel like the power of gatekeepers has eroded significantly. Yes. The fact that we're here having this conversation and it's going to be on a podcast that you didn't need anybody's permission to make. You're like, I'm going to make this thing. Here it is out in the world. Same with the app that we made. Like we made a thing. I guess there is a gatekeeper in that case, Apple, because they do have to review it and approve it. So there is a little bit of a gatekeeper there, but it's a different level of gatekeeping because the platform is there for anybody to use. Yes. It was this, it needs to meet criteria, not this needs to have right. the content that right. we decide. The, their criteria is structural and only slightly content because there is there are content restrictions like gambling and pornography and things like that. So there are some content restrictions, but it's very, but other than that, they're not going to tell me we're not publishing your app because it's about Inkle and nobody cares. Exactly. We don't know what Inkle is. Why should we care? We're not publishing it. No, they're not that kind of gatekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> and they, and they also didn't say 50 right. bucks. No, you can't charge 50 right. bucks for this. So if people want to learn more about you and see things that you're putting out into the world, besides the app in the app store, where can they go? Inkledesigner123.com. Inkle is I-N-K-L-E. We never did say that in the beginning. I, <laughs> no. I didn't think to do that, but I-N-K-L-E, InkleDesigner123.com is our website. 
even if you're not interested in, in doing it yourself, our documentation for the app includes 28 videos for different parts of the app. So you can see how the app works, if that's something that you find interesting and fun to look at. You can see basically the entire function of the app without having to buy it. Nice. We did that on purpose because there's not a free option. It's not a try it for free and then buy it kind of a situation. Um, You either have to buy it or not. We knew at that price point, we needed a way for people to be able to see it. And we needed documentation anyways. So we went with video documentation and you can see all of the function of the app. Nice. And sign up for a newsletter. Find out what we're doing next. I was just going to ask, is that also available at the same site? Yes. What we are doing immediately next, we're going to do a 100 days project, 100 days of Inco, of course, and that will be launching on March 27. And that is after this goes live. So people can listen to this and they will still have time to join. Excellent. This has been so interesting. Thank you so much for coming and talking. No problem. I can always talk about fiber. So. <laughs> <laughs> microphone. I can talk. Thanks for listening. Ordinary Chaos is written, produced, edited, and all the things by me, Heath. The music was created by Keith Kelly. You can find show notes and learn more about the podcast, about Keith, or about me at OrdinaryChaosPodcast.com. As always, Ordinary Chaos is an ad-free podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to OrdinaryChaosPodcast.com, scroll down, and click support the podcast. (laughs) Sorry, the dog is barking at random people walking by. That's okay. I can edit. (laughs) I think she's hearing the next door, the construction workers are talking. She just wanted to say hi to everybody on your podcast. (laughs) 